You may turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55. I'm confident Isaiah 55 is worth a lot more attention than three weeks I'm devoting to it. I would love to spend more time in Isaiah, but especially, or 55, but especially since I'm going to be gone next week, I hate to have another break in, in thinking about this particular chapter in the series of chapters we're doing from chapters 40 through the end of the book. So this will be, I think, the last week in Isaiah 55. When I come back, then I will resume in Isaiah 56. I want to start off with my favorite Baptist, and that would be Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon lived in uh, the 1800s. He died in, I think it was 1892. And Charles Spurgeon preached a number of sermons in Isaiah 55, some of which I've already shared with you. I've already shared with you that he said regarding this chapter, what he called it was God's own gospel sermon. And we've listened to the chapter read two times out of the New International Version by David, is it Suchet? Okay, by David Suchet, who does an excellent job reading it. I'm not going to do that again this morning, but I do want to follow up on what Charles Spurgeon says about how it is that this particular chapter is God's own gospel sermon. He starts by asking a question. Some will say, what is the gospel? And so this is Charles Spurgeon's answer on this particular Sunday in uh, what is the gospel. He starts off this way. Well... The gospel, as I take it, can be looked at in various ways, but I will put it tonight as this. The gospel is the preaching of a full, free, present, everlasting pardon to sinners through Jesus Christ's atoning blood. Now, he's going to say more, but I want to pause and talk about atoning blood for just a moment because that's not a term we commonly use. Uh, You get the sense... In the gospel, God's good news has everything to do with Christ's shed blood. If he doesn't die as a sacrifice for sin, as a sin bearer, there is no good news. Because the gospel in some sense, now I'm giving my own version or my own take on it. The gospel is Christ took my sin and I received his righteousness by faith. So uh, atoning blood, we do use the word atone once in a while. Like if, uh, if you did something regrettable, wrong, something you're ashamed of, uh, somebody may say or you may say, you know, you need to atone for that or I need to atone for that. I need to make amends. I need to make it good. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. I have guilt, shame. You have guilt and shame. How do we make amends with a holy God? It's by Christ's atoning blood. He's the one who makes amends between guilty sinners and his, his own character, his own good, righteous, holy character. So, the gospel is the preaching of a full, free, present, everlasting pardon to sinners through Jesus Christ's atoning blood. If I understand the gospel at all, it has in it a great deal more than this. But still, this is the substance of it. I have to preach tonight the great fact that while all have sinned, Christ has died. And to all penitents who now confess their sins and put their trust in Christ, there is a full free pardon. Free in this respect, that you have nothing to do in order to get it. 
the meanest, sin-stricken sinner has simply to pour out his plaintive griefs before God. That is all God asks. There is no need to pass through years of penance, of hard labor, and of trial. The gospel is as free as the air you breathe. You do not pay for breathing. You do not pay for seeing the sunlight, nor for the water that flows in the river as you stoop to drink it in your, th- to drink it in your thirst. So the gospel is free. Nothing is to be done in order to get it. There is free pardon for the chief of sinners through Jesus Christ's blood. And then he ends, at least this wasn't the whole sermon, but my quote ends this way. But I said it was a full pardon, and so it is. When Christ does anything, he never does it by halves. He is willing this night to blot out every sin and cleanse every iniquity of every soul present who is now prepared by God's grace to seek his mercy. If now, sinner, God hath put it in thine heart to seek him, the pardon which he is prepared to give thee is a full one, not a pardon for a part of your sins, but for all at once. That is the gospel. Let me pray. God, our Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for a plan of salvation that was purchased and accomplished by sending the Son, the eternal Son of God, into our world. He became what he wasn't so that we could become what we are not. I thank you for this righteousness which is full and free to all who will believe. I pray that in our hearts, if we have yet resisted or not understood that you would open us to understanding that the thing we desire above all else is to be at peace with our maker through the work of Christ. It's in his name I pray, amen. With that introduction of the gospel, in Isaiah chapter 55, we have God's own gospel sermon. We've spent most of our time in two weeks on the first three verses. I've got one little leftover thought from verse three, and then we will hopefully finish out the chapter. It starts off like this, and last week we discovered that the English Standard Version gets off on the wrong foot because it opens with the word come, which is not the same word that's translated, uh, that is rightly translated come, or come, or come. It's not come, it's alas. Or a New King James Version says, ho! Come to the waters, or ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Alas, come to the waters. And we talked about why that word is so important last week. And uh, it's unfortunate that it's not translated properly in the English Standard Version. He then goes on after the initial, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And then we have, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. That's halfway into verse 3. I want to talk about that word incline for just a moment. It's a word that's used over 200 times in the Old Testament. But it's got, it's an I mean, the Hebrew is more this way than the New Testament Greek, but the range of meaning is fairly broad. So it's a word that's used 200 times in the Old Testament, at least in one English translation. It goes by 35 different translated words. 
In this particular case, it's translated incline, but there are 34 other words that is sometimes also used. So it's got a broad meaning. If I turn to the theological word book of the Old Testament, it would say that the root meaning of this word, like if you, if you hone down what kind of encompasses all of its uses, it has the idea of stretching out or extending. Stretching out or extending. Incline your ear and come to me. What does it mean to incline your ear? To stretch out your ear. To extend your ear. You could all put your hand around your ear like this and lean in while I'm preaching, but that would probably get awkward for you and it'd be a little disconcerting for me. So what does it mean to incline your ear? I'm going to use an illustration from bicycling. I bicycled, you know, everybody learned to ride a bicycle when they first grew up. I didn't learn until I was nine years old. And there's a story behind that, and I shouldn't waste time on it, but I will. (laughs) The short story is, I went to Pershing School in Decatur. In Pershing School, you couldn't ride your bike to school until you were in the fourth grade. And so I saw no reason to learn how to ride a bike until I was in fourth grade. So I was one of the last people to ever learn to ride a bike. And when you start off riding a bike, you just ride on flat pedals. And then when I started road biking a little bit more seriously, some 30 years ago or so, I eventually got, it's kind of a cage that your shoe fits in. And it's more than just a flat pedal, it's it's just kind of a cage. And I rode like that for a lot, many, many years, decades. And then about seven or eight years ago, I transitioned to what are called clipless bike pedals. Uh, It's kind of a misnomer because you actually clip into these pedals. But what it means is you're not in the cage like I was in before. So I have a special shoe with a special cleat that clips in to these pedals, and your foot is locked into the pedal. And so you're supposed to be able to ride faster because you have the, the power isn't wasted on trying to keep your foot on the pedal. It's locked in. And there's a learning curve. To, to using those pedals. I got them in the winter time seven or eight years ago. I get in my garage. I'm trying to figure out how to clip into the pedals and especially how to clip back out of the pedals while I'm balancing myself. Uh, but there's a learning curve. And once you get it, it's, it's a piece of cake. But the first year and the first couple months where I didn't quite have it down, I'm bicycling over by Hickory Bank, Hickory Point Bank in Rural King, coming up to the stoplight. And I'm coming up to the stoplight, and I clipped out like I should, but I was leaning the wrong direction. So this foot was free, but I'm leaning this way, and right there at the stoplight, I just fell right over. Right in front of the drive through and, and it's, it's very embarrassing, but I imagine most people that bicycle like I do, they probably have a story like that or so. So, what we learn is inclining results in a certain inevitable outcome. If I'm leaning the wrong way when I clip out on one side, I'm going to fall over. It's an inevitable outcome. I'm leaning the wrong direction. So what does it mean when God says, incline your ear and come to me? Lean into me and come to me. What does that mean? What does that look like? Here's what it does not mean. The Lord is not saying, listen closely. The Lord is not saying, repeat after me so that I know you got it. It's more than that. 
it results in a certain inevitable outcome. You will lean in and incline, and it will result in, in certain things. Let me give you two things that starts with the same thing from two different passages, and then something bigger that it leads to. We'll start off with Deuteronomy, which is something Jesus quoted when he was tempted. Deuteronomy says, He, the Lord, humbled you, the Israelites, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that a man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So it starts with, if you're going to lean in, you are listening closely. You're, you're listening more closely to what the Lord says than what you think is true. You are more in tune with what he says is true than what you're experiencing or what your circumstances are. I've told you before, Warren Wearsby, one of the definitions he gave of faith is either your circumstances will tell you what is true about God which is not good, or God will tell you what is true about your circumstances. If I'm living by every word that comes from the mouth of God then or the Lord, if I'm living by that, then I will use God to see my circumstances rather than the other way around. Here's the way Solomon puts it in the Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. If you lean on your own understanding... Like on that bicycle, you're going to fall right over, and it's not going to be good. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. So incline, lean in, come to me, hear that your soul may live, which I haven't spent a lot of time on, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning either. I want to build on the second part of verse 3, which goes like this. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. That's the inevitable outcome when you're leaning in and listening. The Lord promises your soul will live, and your soul will live because I will make with you an everlasting covenant, the steadfast, sure love of David. So, what do we know about David? Because... uh, Isaiah, well, the Lord, this is the Lord's own gospel sermon. The Lord brings up David. What do we know about him? I'll tell you a few things. I would, if I had all the time in the world, I would probably uh, do a family feud game. I would love to have one side against the other side. I'm going to kind of do that. It's, it can't be as detailed as I like. I'm going to give this side first dibs. I'm going to say David is one of the ten most mentioned individuals in Scripture. He's in the top ten. I'm going to give this side the chance to get the first five. And if they don't get it right, then this side can steal. Who do you think are the, first, the five most mentioned individuals in Scripture? Jesus is number one. All right? So, I mean, Jesus is mentioned 1,274 times. Number one. You've got one. You get three strikes. You got number one of five. Who who else? Abraham. Abraham. (laughs) Not even in the top ten. Not even in, not even. It's very interesting because he's one of the most important people in Scripture. He's pivotal in Scripture, but he's not one of the most 
mentioned people in Scripture. So that's one strike. Who else? Maddie, you got one? David number two. David is the... He, other than Jesus, nobody in Scripture is named more than David. 1,118 times would be David. Three more for this side to win. Jacob is number seven. <clears throat> number seven. That's two strikes. So you've only got the top two. There's number three, four, and five are still missing. This, is, this was harder than I would have imagined, right? You guys got one guess left, and then they can steal. You guys should be talking. <laughs> Moses is number three. So you've got the top three. Moses is 740 times. 740 times. Two left. You have one strike and you're out. This side gets to steal. Four and five. Anybody over here want to venture a guess? No. You don't get a pass after two strikes. Who, who's, who's got their hand up? Adam? Not Adam. Adam, not in the top ten. This side gets to steal. Who do you think? We've, we know Jesus one, David two, Moses three. You're going to go Paul? Number ten. <laughs> Paul is not. Here's, here's the order. Where else are you going to get this stuff? Number four on the list. The fourth most mentioned individual in all of the Bible is Aaron, Moses' brother. 339 times. And that's kind of interesting. That tells you how important the priestly system was that was given by God that all foreshadowed what Christ would do. Number four. Number five on the list, you'd never get it. King Saul. Number five on the list, King Saul, 338. Number six, Solomon. Number seven, Jacob. Number eight, Joseph. I assume that is only Joseph in the Old Testament. Number nine, Joshua. And number 10 would be the Apostle Paul. Those are your top 10. That's very interesting. But the most mentioned individual in all of the Bible, other than Jesus, is David. That's who is brought up now. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Now, those aren't the hats David wore, but that gives you an idea. David wore a lot of hats in Scripture. David started off as a shepherd. Uh, David started off tending his father's sheep. Uh, David wound up being an attendant in Saul's court. Uh, David was a poet. David was a musician. Uh, David uh, wound up being a friend and confidant to Saul's son, uh, Jonathan. Uh, David wound up being a king, right? David was a prophet. He's called a prophet in the New Testament. Uh, David wound up being a fugitive. Uh, David wound up being kind of an outlaw when, when uh, Saul was after him to kill him. David wore a lot of hats. And so uh, there's lots of famous pastors and books uh, written on David and his life. There's a lot of material uh, a lot of churches at some point may do a series where they study the life of David because there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of material. But the most important thing you need to know about David, out of all the hats that David wore, would be this. The most meaningful feature and aspect of David's life is entirely bound up in God's grace to him. David could have... He may be the king by which all other kings in Israel are measured... 
But it's God's grace in his life that makes David the person that he is and was, was and is. Um, That's the most important feature. It started off when Samuel was told, you're going to anoint the king of my choosing that will replace Saul because Saul is not obedient. Uh, He's idolatrous. And and Samuel goes as directed to uh, Jesse's home and these different... Uh, sons are brought before him, and, and Samuel is convinced, son number one, uh, good-looking, strong, strapping, seems to have everything you could possibly want in a king, and you'll remember the Lord says, don't look as a man looks. Because the king of my choosing is not somebody uh, who's regarded by, by what you see. I look at the heart. And so from the very beginning, David is chosen by grace of the Lord's own choosing. Not to do with David's talents and abilities, not to do with David's merit, but by God's own gracious choice, David is chosen as the Lord's anointed. That's how the story starts off uh, in David's life. That's how we're introduced to him. I want to talk about this word, you, for just a moment. Because whatever we learn about David, the Lord says, I'm going to make with you... An everlasting covenant. The you is plural. So the first thing you need to know in the context where we're at in Isaiah 55, he's talking to the nation of Israel. He's saying to Israel as a nation, I'm going to make a covenant with you, the nation, like I made with David, my steadfast, sure love. Now, it's also true of you, the individual. The individual Israelite who puts his faith and hope and inclines his ear to God participates in this everlasting covenant, is a recipient of the steadfast, sure love of David that the Lord had for David. The church participates in this promise, this everlasting covenant. I, as an individual saved by the grace of God through faith, participate in this promise. But it starts in this context with the nation of Israel, just so you know that. The you is plural. To appreciate what the Lord is promising in Isaiah, we need to understand what the Lord promised to David. Because the Lord says to Israel, I'm going to do for you, Israel, what I've done for David. I'm going to do for you, the church, God's people, what I did for David. I'm going to do for you, the individual Christian, I'm going to do for you what I did for David. Now, the story is told in three places. 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17, and Psalm 89. I'm only going to have us turn to Psalm 89. So turn in your Bible to Psalm 89. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 495. All those scriptures are worth your time. But Psalm 89 is the one scripture that I want us to look at. This is a psalm, it says, uh, of Ethan the Ezraite. Psalm 89. This describes what the Lord promised to David, which by extension is an advantage to all of Israel, by extension is an advantage to Christ's church, by extension is an advantage to every individual believer. Psalm 89 reads this way. It's a long psalm. I'm not going to quite read the entire thing, but I'm going to read a good portion of it. It goes like this. 
I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be, will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are, who are around him? O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crush Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. We're getting this picture of the character of God, what he can do, how he knows no limits. Verse 15. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. Now here's the real heart of it. Verse 24. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law, and they did. And do not walk according to my rules, and they didn't. If they violate my statutes, they did that too. If they do not keep my commandments, they didn't do that. Then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with strifes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant. Or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. 
His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Do you get the picture? What the Lord does for David is by his grace. And the Lord says, there is nothing that you could possibly do that is going to make this not happen. I have sworn by my own holiness. This is my everlasting covenant. If your descendants are faithless, I'm still going to keep my end of the bargain. That's what the Lord promises David. That's what the Lord is promising Israel. That's what the Lord promises his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I I find it so amusing when every once in a while in whatever Christian publication... They talk about trends of religion in our culture or trends of of, uh, uh, religion in the world. And they talk about the demise of the church or how the church is, you know, we're not going to even know the church. The gates of hell can't prevail against Christ's church. Christians come and go. The Lord's servants come and go. Christ's church is indestructible because it stands by the everlasting covenant of the Lord. I am indestructible. Not that I'm not one day going to lay down my head in the grave. Not that I'm going to die one day. But no man can touch me apart from the will of my Father. That's a true statement. And my death may be as untimely as I could possibly imagine. And nobody saw it coming. But it didn't happen apart from the will and the knowledge of God. The promise the Lord made to David of his steadfast love, of his sure love, is the same promise for all those who incline their ear and step in and receive the gospel as it's explained, as it's, as it's fleshed out in Scripture. It's this statement. Christ Jesus is the fulfillment of the everlasting covenant that promises steadfast, sure love. Christ Jesus is the basis of the everlasting covenant that promises steadfast, sure love. Christ Jesus is the means of the everlasting covenant that promises steadfast, sure love. The reason why God can make the promise and say, there's nothing you can do that is going to stop this is because it is fulfilled by the person of his, his own son. It rests upon that foundation. It rests upon that person. It rests upon his work. So that Paul says in Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ Jesus. Whatever God promises, however lofty, however seemingly impossible it is, whatever God promises, it all hinges on the person of his son. If it hinges on his, the likes of us, it'll fall to the ground. It will never be realized. But if what God promises depends on the obedience and the character of himself, of his own son, it has to be everlasting. Because he cannot fail. This is applied in Acts chapter 2. It's applied in Acts chapter 13. I don't have time for those scriptures. But I recommend them to you. Acts chapter 2 is the sermon Peter preaches at Pentecost. It's the first sermon we know that Peter preached. I mean the, one, the first one recorded in scripture. It's not like there's an earlier sermon that's recorded in scripture. The first time Peter stands up and preaches. You know what he's preaching about? The gospel... He's preaching about Christ as the fulfillment and the basis and the means of an everlasting covenant. He's preaching Christ Jesus as the fulfillment of David. 
He talks about David in, in his sermon at Pentecost. The first sermon ever recorded that Paul preached, Acts chapter 13. He, meant, he preaches David. And he quotes Isaiah 55 and verse 3, the very verse we're working on. The very promises that God gave to David, Paul preaches in Acts 13 and says that same steadfast love is for all those that put their hope in Christ. For all those that turn to Christ. So now, we've got this verse 3 where I'm as done with it as I can possibly be. It's followed up by two beholds, which beholds are a fascinating word, a study in and of itself in Isaiah. These wonderful beholds of Scripture. Behold number one, based upon verse three, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. That's what I did for David. It's evidence of my steadfast, sure love for David. That's what I did for David. Behold. But I promised the same thing to Israel. So for Israel, behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And the nation that did not know you shall run to you because of, the, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. This is a theme that we've seen many times in Isaiah. The Lord is going to bring Israel to himself in such a way that the other nations stand up and take notice. The nations of the world are going to say, we didn't see that coming. Kind of like... Uh, On some level, I would say Ezekiel's dry bones, nobody saw Israel becoming a nation in 1948. After 1,900 years of not being a nation, of 1,900 years where Jews were scattered over the face of God's earth, and then in 1948 they're brought back into a homeland and called a nation, a nation that is still not in right relationship to their God. But the Lord says, Behold, there's, there's coming a day where Israel will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him and recognize they denied, they rejected their Messiah the first time around. Verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. These verses are very similar to how the, uh, Isaiah 55 starts off with this. Alas, everyone who thirsts, come. Now in verses 6 and 7, seek the Lord. And verses 6 and 7 are kind of a pivot point upon which the rest of the chapter hinges. Everything else flows from verses 6 and 7. There's two, these two wiles, while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. That is suggesting there is coming a day where those people will call and he will not be found. That's suggesting there will, there's coming a day they will call upon him and he will not be near. And that's scripture too. Right now we live in Pentecost. Right now we live in the gospel proclamation Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But I can tell you in Proverbs chapter 1, there's going to be those that are calling and they won't be answered. I can tell you Jesus taught a parable about ten virgins, some of which had enough oil for their lamps, some of which did not. And when those that did not have enough oil came later and knocked on the door and said, let us in, they won't be let in. That calling is too late. Now, because we're mortal... Your opportunity to call upon the name of the Lord, on one sense, it has to be done before you die. 
it also has to be done before Christ comes back in power and glory. In either case, I don't know when the end is. I don't know when I'll die. I don't know when Christ will come back in power and glory. But I do know if I have not called upon the name of the Lord for salvation, there will, it will be too late after I'm gone. It will be too late. So let's talk about what the seeking entails. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. He talks about forsaking your way and forsaking your thoughts and returning to the Lord. There are implications to that. To forsake my way. It means that to call upon the name of the Lord and to seek him while he may be found. It doesn't mean Christianity is not you add Jesus to the mix of life. That's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. It's not now your life is a little more complicated because now you've got to do the religious thing on Sunday. That's not calling upon the name of the Lord. It's not, it's not some aspect of your life. It becomes a pearl of great price. It becomes the treasure hidden in a field. It becomes the one thing you can't be without. And while you can enjoy every other gift that God gives you, the one thing that better not ever depart is God's gospel and his promise and his son. Come hell or high water... I've got Christ in my life. I can make it. I've got what I need. It's an exclusive covenantal relationship. What God calls people to is an exclusive covenantal relationship. Not add me to the mix of an already too busy life. Call upon the name of the Lord. Forsake your way. Forsake your thoughts. Because you know why? My thoughts are inflated. I think too much of myself. I think too little of my sin. I think too little of God. If I'm left to my own thinking, I downplay my sin. I upplay my righteousness. I downplay God's righteousness. And I think whatever effort I'm making, it's good enough to get me into the kingdom of heaven. So long as I'm thinking according to my thoughts, I will be excluded from the kingdom of heaven. So long as I'm living like the world says, how you have peace with God, you will be excluded from the kingdom of heaven. I think it was Mike Drew that said it first time I heard it said, and I thought it was really good. He said, you know what? Nobody makes their peace with God. God makes peace in Christ. If you think you've made your peace with God, you will be excluded because you don't make peace with God. God makes peace with us through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a promise and assurance attached to all this, uh, a result of forsaking our way, forsaking our thoughts. That is, he has compassion and he abundantly pardons. That word pardon is a rare word in the Old Testament, though the concept is there all the way through. It's a rare word. It's used less than 50 times. This is the only time the word pardon is used in Isaiah, the only time it's used. It's an abundant pardon. Charles Spurgeon loved the term, he will abundantly pardon because my sin is abundant. And and there's the thought, initially I put in my notes, you know, equal to my sin is God's pardon. But that's not the half of it. Because greater than my sin is God's grace. He will abundantly pardon. Now all this is meant to be shocking. Because this isn't how we think. Every religion of the world is based upon you live a certain moral life, you achieve a certain standard, and you're good. And what God is saying is you've got to abandon that kind of thinking. It will keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. 
You've got to forsake your own righteousness. You've got to forsake your own mer- uh, meritorious deeds. You've got to leave it all behind. You've got to entirely lean on me and trust in me and what I've done. If you're not willing to do that, you will not receive my abundant pardon. That's a scary proposition for people that like to think of themselves as righteous. So an explanation follows. It's followed up by all these little fours. I know this is hard to believe. I know it sounds too good to be true. That all you have to do is believe. That all you have to do is receive and rest upon what I've done. But here it is. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. For... As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. That's the same word that's translated for. It shall not return to me empty for it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He's explaining. He's unpacking. I know it sounds to be good, too good to be true, but here's what you need to understand. You don't think like God thinks. You don't understand what it takes to forgive sins, pardon sins. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him. So he's unpacking that. He, he gives us this statement. I'm highlighting it. It's my word shall accomplish... That which I purpose, it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Not some of the time, all of the time. Right now, as I speak, God's word is accomplishing exactly what he intends it to accomplish. And for some, it could be that your heart is more hardened to what the truth of the gospel is. For some, it may be, you know what? I played the religious thing my whole life. I'm not sure I've ever received Christ's salvation. For others, it's an affirmation. Thank God it doesn't depend on me. Thank God that Christ died to take away my sins because that is my only hope in life and death. What is my only hope? Christ alone. Christ alone. It does accomplish that which he purposes. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians. To some, the gospel is an aroma of death. To some, it is an aroma of life. May it be an aroma of life to each individual here this morning. Then the thoughts and the ways of the Lord, which are not like ours, are specifically identified in the closing verses. We're not left guessing in this context, what does it mean God is going to accomplish what he purposes? He tells you exactly what he means is, is going to accomplish. It looks like this. God's purpose for Israel is this. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. God has a purpose for Israel. Uh, God says, This is my purpose for you. This is what I'm going to accomplish for you. Israel is far away from the gospel as they are right now. God has an everlasting purpose and covenant and plan that he will bring into fulfillment because God's word does not return into him void. This is how it will end up for Israel. It's also how it will end up for all the people of God, the redeemed people of God. The church, 
individuals, it will end up with all of creation, the curse being removed and the gospel triumphing. Isaiah chapter 55. What a glorious chapter. What are your comments and questions? Rick? We get back to the Garden of Eden, the concept. You know, all that's uh, Adam's transgression, which plunged God's creation under the influence of sin, it will all one day be removed. That's joy to the world. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. That includes the soil. That includes, includes the gardens. It includes the orchards. Every place where the, the curse of sin is found will one day be removed. That's what's being celebrated there. It's not just a return from Babylonian exile. This is much bigger than that. Much bigger than a return from Babylonian exile. All of creation is celebrating God completing his purposes for his chosen people, Israel. Someone else? Sonia. I think he, yeah, that's the Lord's promise to Israel. You, Israel, shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains, yeah, you're right. That's right. We always, I mean, on, on some level, I mean, in the immediate context, it's of Israel. On some level, that's because they are led and paraded by their king, the king of kings and lord of lords. So the, Lord, the only reason why that could possibly be true of Israel is because the Lord Jesus Christ is who he is. So in some sense, you could read Jesus into it or Christ Jesus into it. But yeah, the promise is to Israel. Which is interesting. It's like, it's like most songs that we sing, uh, they're removed from their context. I, James Greer, my favorite story about him in music is, uh, I, I hope I don't butcher it, but James Greer talks about, you know, because he, he loves teaching about the big narrative of Scripture. He loved doing that. And he talked about, uh, you know, in the kingdom of heaven, in the new Jerusalem, you know, uh, he always, we sing the song, He the Pearly Gates Will Open. There's a song. There's an old song. Nancy, okay, Nan, I was figured if anybody knows it, it's Nancy. Cause she knows, she, I don't know how many hymnals she has, but she knows a lot of songs. He the Pearly Gates Will Open. And James Greer said, and then I read Revelation and I found out they're never closed. Like, it made for a great song, but it's not what the Bible teaches. Revel, you look it up in Revelation, it says the gates are never closed. But our song says, He the Pearly Gates Will Open. And so many of our songs, so many of our verses are like that. We, you know, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. It was, it's, written to a, it's written to a community of believers. It's never your little light that shines. It's the, it's the light of the, the community of Christ's people that shines. It doesn't mean on some level, by extension, your light should shine. But that's not the original context. That's why we spend time in the Bible to try to correct that stuff. <laughs> Somebody else? Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.